really got to try on that left hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you all sorts of news and interviews from the world of rugby union. I'm David Lawrence, and you can get in touch with me at of Scrum or any of the usual ways. Today, I wanted to bring you something I think is pretty special, which is an interview I had with Dr. Tony Collins back in the early days of the podcast, and I still can't believe he was generous enough with his time to have this conversation. If you're interested at all in rugby history, you need to check out the books and podcasts of Dr. Collins, truly a scholar and a gent. And with all of that out of the way, let's just get to it. It was so rewarding. So, okay, here in the United States, I would say that there's a fundamental confusion about this term football. So when you ask an American if they like football, they're going to automatically assume you mean the NFL. Um, while there are other leagues that play this style of football or something close to it, see the Canadian Football League, the NFL is so big, they have just taken over what the notion of football means to Americans, in my opinion. So if, it wasn't, to me at least, it wasn't until the Soccer World Cup in 1994 that came here to the United States that there was even any awareness that when the rest of the world says football, they don't mean what we think of as football. <laughs> I could be wrong about that, but it felt like that was the time, the year that everyone went, oh, the rest of the world calls something else football. So why is all this? Why are there competing ideas of the term football? And quite frankly, in a game like the NFL, where there's almost no kicking, why is the term football even applied? So to answer these questions and all the questions that logically follow that, I would strongly urge you to look up Tony Collins, a writer who has, for me, been a revelation in terms of understanding the evolution of the game. Uh, Professor Collins, you mentioned in our emails that I could call you Tony. Is that all right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, uh, Professor is, is my job title, uh, but uh, um, amongst friends and everybody else, I'm just Tony. <laughs> That's good. Thank you very much. Well, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and for helping me to hopefully shed some light on what particularly in the United States can be a, a pretty confusing subject, let's face it. So yeah, go sorry. ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, no, 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 I was, sorry. I was going to jump in and talk and uh, talk a bit about the football question. Mm. Um, if that's where you want to start. Of course. Well, I think what it's interesting that you say that because um, when I was growing up, I come from Hull, which is a, a port town in the north of England, kind of blue-collar town. And the main game there is, is rugby league, the 13-man version of rugby. And um, my grandfather always called it football. And now there's a soccer team in Hull, Hull City, which is uh, was in the Premier League uh, not so long ago, but uh, is now in the Championship. Um, and I always wondered, well, hang on, we've got a football team which is Hull City, and we've got two rugby teams, two rugby league teams, Hull KR and Hull FC. So why does my granddad call it football? Mm. And he was born in 1907. And when he was growing up, football encompassed all the different versions oh. of that came from the original games of football as they were played in the 19th century. Oh, so he, whether he, it was... he didn't just mean rugby league. He also could have meant a soccer match. He, he would have just said... Football. Well, he could have done, but because we came from Hull and rugby league was a dominant game there, football meant rugby oh, league. Okay. Whereas if he'd have gone um, you know, 60 miles down the road to, say, for example, Nottingham or Sheffield, 
football would have meant soccer. And bizarrely, if he had gone to rugby school, the birthplace of rugby, football would mean rugby, rugby union. Right, right. And so a lot of it depends, bizarrely, on which yeah. type of football got there first. So if you go to, go to Sydney in Australia, where there's, there's four football codes, there's rugby league, rugby union, Australian rules and soccer, it's very difficult to know which game people are talking about when they say, did you see the football <laughs> at the weekend? Oh, yeah. Because they could mean rugby league, they could mean Aussie rules. And so it's very confusing, even for someone like me who's steeped in the game. So the first time I went to Sydney, people were talking about football, and I wasn't quite sure which type of football they meant. So when Kiwis say footy, do they exclusively mean rugby, or is that also sort of for multiple codes? Well, in, no, in, it's interesting. In New Zealand, it's slightly different because rugby has always been known as rugby. But on the other hand, you get, you get a situation where people will talk about good footballers which would mean an artful, crafty rugby player or someone with a football brain. So it's kind of um, New Zealand and South Africa is the same as well, because it's always rugby. But on the other hand, within rugby, if you like, people talk about footballers, naturally gifted footballers, great football talent, uh, by which normally they mean people have a really good rugby great brain. They're fast, intelligent, strategic in the way they view the game. So, um, so obviously in America, you have a situation where... The, the world's dominant co um, code of football, soccer, is not the dominant game. Right. The NFL is, college football is. And so that's football. And it's a real struggle for soccer to be accepted as football in places where it's not the dominant code. So, for example, in Australia, where you know it's probably fourth or third or fourth most important code behind the league and Aussie rules, um, the Football Association of Australia insisted, maybe 10, 15 years ago, insisted that all the press called it football and not soccer, because oh. it, it decided that that would make it more legitimate and help it compete against the other football codes. So ah. it's incredibly confusing. Wow. So uh, I think a good question is, so uh, let's go back to the beginning then. When did all this begin? It's my understanding, mostly from reading your work, uh, before there were codified rules, there was, of course, folk football, sometimes uh, even played between entire towns. Is that right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think as long as as long as humans have um, um, been able to play games with inflatable balls or even you know, wooden balls, then there's been game team games that have, have resembled in some ways, or at least resembled the elements in some ways, of the modern codes of football. Uh, and so in England, France, many European countries in the um, before the 19th century, before the Industrial Revolution, there were lots of different football games played. As you said, there was it was called folk, folk football. Uh, it was played between towns. Uh, you often had a situation where games were played on uh, sort of festival holiday oh, um, right. days, uh, like Shrove Tuesday, which was a big festival throughout Europe. And you'd often get um, teams made of one half of a town or a village playing against the other half of a town. So you know, everybody would join in and they'd have to get the ball from uh, their end of the town to, the, to a goal at the other end of the town. And they'd go over fields, through streets, over rivers, through rivers. And some of these games still play today in, um, in Britain. There's a game and, in, in, in Italy that's similar to this too. It's like a ton of people on each side and it's just brutal. Absolutely, yeah, I, 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 and that's probably the best um, 
remain an example of this in um, in Florence. Mm. Um, it's um, called Calcio Fiorentina. Right. And it's played and it's a, um, a couple of times year, every think, year. A couple of times. Yeah, okay. I think it's a couple of times, but it's played on a particular festival. And it dates back to the um, the 15th, 16th centuries when it became it was a uh, it was a major part of the culture of the town, um, and it's it's kind of preserved today as a kind of tourist attraction or part of the general oh. uh, festivals in summer. So it's it's worth going to see. It's a fantastic spectacle, and it's it's strange to modernise because um, although it's claimed by Italian soccer as being the forerunner of soccer, to modernise it looks more like a kind of rugby, a kind of NFL college football style game. There's um, it's very brutal. There's a lot of hits off the ball. Uh, fights break out all the time, and the idea is you've got to get the ball it, um, over to the other end of the pitch, over to the other end of the pitch, uh, and score against your opponent. So it's not really very much like soccer. And mm. I think this is a thing about many of the old style games that were played in the towns and villages before the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Well, that leads that me. They, oh, I'm sorry. That this leads me perfectly yeah. to this question, which is: so, is it also true that while people were using the term football, that definitely didn't mean no hands? In fact, most of these early iterations probably did involve either carrying or handing off or passing to some extent. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, there's there's very um, there's almost no evidence of any games where only kicking the ball was allowed in as it is in mo in modern soccer. And you, you know, certainly. Historians in the 19th century, when they look back at the older types of uh, football, when they were comparing them to modern soccer or rugby, uh, they made the point that, that, that there isn't an example of soccer. Soccer, in a way, is a is an anomaly because you can't well, use your hands. Was it a gimmick? Was it that they said, OK, let's do this match to sort of just as a gimmick to see if people will come and pay money to see this? And then it kind of worked out? Or am I imagining that whole thing? No, it, it kind of... Uh, it kind of evolved in, in um, what was going on in the middle of the 19th century in England. Uh, the top private schools, the elite private schools, all had their own code of football, which more or less involved kicking the ball. You could handle it. <clears throat> Even soccer allowed handling initially. You could catch it. You could knock it down with your hands. Um, but mo only in rugby could you actually run with the ball in your hands, hand off people, oh, okay, and try okay. and make forward progress like that. Uh, but even in rugby, there was a lot of kicking of the ball and the scrum initially was about dribbling the ball forward rather than healing the ball back, as we know today. Mm. The idea was to dribble it forward and break up your opponent's pack uh, and kick the ball downfield and chase it and hopefully score a try. So there was a lot of kicking involved in all types of the game. Um, soccer evolved because it, I think in some ways, the people who supported soccer in the, the particular private schools where, where that type of game was more popular, felt that rugby was probably more dangerous because you had to bend down and pick up the ball. Mm. Uh, and so there was a lot of concern in Britain in the middle of the 19th century when all this was emerging about the safety of sports. Really? Uh, how, how to, yeah, how to protect um, you know, boys and young men who were playing it. Because there were a number of deaths. Uh, a number of deaths took place, very bad injuries in school games. So an idea developed that it was it was uh, less dangerous to play just a kicking game, although this itself became very controversial and there wasn't really much evidence that that was true. But I think that's that's probably how these initial divisions between rugby and soccer developed, because initially, certainly up until, well, certainly up until the, the 
beginning of the 20th century, dribbling the ball in rugby was a highly prized skill. Uh, hmm. And some nations such as Scotland specialised in forwards who could dribble the ball downfield and control it. Kind of a bit like soccer. Oh, I, I never knew that. So and this is like we were talking ahead of time. It's hard to know how basic to make it, but I, I figure it's at least worth it since at least half of my listeners are here in the United States. So for any of you who don't know, I think Tony already mentioned the name of the sport rugby does originally come from the name of the school where it started. Uh, it's the rugby school, a school that was founded back in 1567. I think it's still actively a school today. You can still, you can still go Absolutely. there. If, if, you, if you ever come to England um, to visit and you get, you get a chance to go to the Midlands, uh, rugby's about maybe uh, about 120 miles from London. Um, the school does organise tours occasionally, so you can go, oh. go. You can go on a tourist visit to the school, and they will show you around. Wow, it's a fan, absolutely fantastic. It's like if you're a Harry Potter fan, it really feel at home. So I, I, I have here that it is worth talking about the differences between what Americans think of as public versus private schools, and how those terms are used in the UK. Can you just explain that a little bit? Uh, well, this is very confusing. If you're not English, uh, it's very confusing indeed, because uh, in England, uh, the term public school refers to an elite private school, such as um, Eton, which is like the most prestigious school, Harrow, another school that produces, you know, leading politicians, uh, military men, uh, businessmen and people like that. And rugby is rugby school is one of those schools. It's, it's based in the town of rugby, which is where it gets its name. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, which is about 120 miles from London. It's in the English Midlands. And it is, um, uh, it was really in the 19th century, the most progressive and forward looking school oh. in England. So, so much so that it became the model for many schools that were being created and set up in the 19th century, because uh, it both had a very modern curriculum and emphasized uh, mathematics and languages. Uh, but also because it, it emphasised sport, sport as a, a character building um, uh, form of education in a sense, not just a recreation, well, but a part what, of the overall education of, of the boys who went there. That's kind of inevitably where this was headed too. So these elite schools, of course, are competing against each other. So you've got, I think, Eton rules. I think you had Cambridge rules and, of course, rugby rules. And then I think I wrote here, uh, There was it you who said there was a, a sort of officious Scott at rugby school who decided maybe it was a good idea to actually write down these rules instead of just teach them out loud and have everyone verbally understand that? Well, well, that's, that, again, that's a really interesting question because, yeah, rugby was the first school that actually wrote down its rules um, in a, a little booklet um, that was circulated amongst the boys at school so they would know how to play the game. Uh, and that was in um, 1845. Um, but the Scots, you mentioned the Scots, the Scots were in a sense ahead of the game because rugby was very popular in Scottish schools in the 1850s and 1860s. And they actually wrote down their rules of rugby before the Rugby Football Union wrote oh. its rules. So in a sense, the first general rules of rugby uh, that applied to many schools, not just to a single school like the rugby, rugby school rules, were written in Scotland. They famously, famously became known as the Green Book that all the different schools in Scotland uh, played the game of rugby by. So rugby, along with many or most of the other top schools, they, they strongly believed in the value of sport in the lives of young men, in, in these cases, particularly well-bred Christian young men, I think it's fair to say. Um, these are the people who would have inevitably climbed to positions of power and importance. 
And uh, it must be mentioned, a big part of the impetus for the value placed on sport came from the book that you must be so tired of talking about at this stage. Of course, Tom Brown's School Days, which I actually have on my Kindle, which seems like a strange anomaly somehow. But um, do you mind briefly talking about that book and the way it impacted the evolution of football codes like rugby? Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting that in in many ways it was Tom Brown's school days um, that helped to launch rugby and give rugby the game a prominence uh, in Britain in the 19th century, which led to its spread around the world. Um, and it was written in 1857 by a, um, a a guy called Thomas Hughes, who had been a pupil at the school, and he wrote it as a a guide to what his son. Uh, could expect when he went to that school uh, and uh, sadly his son um, died in um, when he was 89 years old and never made it to the school unfortunately. Oh no I didn't, I had no idea. Yeah it's a tragic story but the book came out and it became an immediate bestseller. I mean it was literally the Harry Potter of its day and there are some, if you read the first Harry Potter book and Tom Brown's school days, there are some parallels, they're not that dissimilar apart from that there's no magic in Tom Brown's school days. <laughs> um, Very little. But yeah, but it's Tom Brown School Days describes what it's like to be a boy at rugby school in the uh, 1830s, 1840s. Uh, it's very much about how the school educates its young men and boys. Uh, so it's it's about learning moral lessons about how to become a man and behave like a man, behave with honour, uh, how to uh, and to believe in things like fair play, sportsmanship team building and, the, the, and the, the phrase muscular christianity comes up a lot absolutely and it's it's the the core of the book is precisely that it's, it's a muscular christian philosophy that believes that um christianity um as it was seen by the victorian uh, british um uh, was about being active it wasn't about contemplating and uh withdrawing from the world it was about being active and going out into the world and taking the gospel as they saw it uh, to the rest of the world or to the to those people in Britain who you know who were working in factories uh, uh, working in the big industrial towns so it was very much muscular Christianity was from a British perspective was very much in a sense it was about the British character building the British character and uh, giving the British a reason and a rationale for uh, for running the British Empire um, and rugby was a part of that. Playing sport was a part of that. And so rugby, the game, became part of the way that the school educated its boys. Uh, it wasn't simply about learning in the classroom. They believed it was about learning uh, on the field when you're playing the game of rugby. And this, so this is kind of where the phrase rugby values we hear so much might have come from. Um, and a big part of rugby values at the time revolved around what we would probably think of now simply as classism. Do you think that's fair? I mean, the people playing these sports in school didn't then go on to grueling jobs with long hours. They are, for the most part, men of leisure. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the the um, the key thing about it that it was seen as a way for the for the boys at rugby school and the other schools that played rugby because it came, Tom Brown school days uh, meant that rugby was taken up by many other private schools. Uh, in Britain as well, because it was seen as the the model for how a school should operate, mm -hmm. and the model for the role that sports should play in the school. But all these young men uh, were trained to be the leaders of Britain, and that they would um, either go into the empire and lead the empire over its subject peoples, or they would become um, businessmen or administrators in Britain, and would set an example and lead, uh, mm -hmm. if you like, the working classes. 
uh, and teach them how to behave and how to fulfill their role in society. And, um, and that was very central to the way that rugby school saw itself. And in the beginning, it was very central to how rugby the game saw itself as well. Well, for, for that reason, it's, it's very important to rugby, especially early on, or at least important to the people in charge of the sport, that it remained strictly amateur. And when I say strictly, I mean any hint of professionalism in your band. It was like that. Is that right? Can you, can you talk about that? See, I don't think there's an equivalent in the United States. Maybe there's some niche Olympic sports that are wholly amateur, but I'm just not aware of them. Well, in the same, I mean, the interesting thing about the States, obviously it's highly professional and highly commercial. Uh, it's a highly commercial and professional sports world. But um, the NCAA is probably the only major sporting organisation in the world that still clings on to amateurism. And whether it is amateur or not is obviously another question. Yeah. Um, but that's, that, a, a lot of that is a legacy of the, um, of the, the sporting uh, lessons uh, that was taken from Britain uh, to America. Because... One of the things that happened is that um, this idea that uh, people in rugby should should lead those people they saw uh, who belong to lower classes um, came under immense pressure in the 1880s. Rugby had become incredibly popular. It was, a, it was a much more popular sport than soccer in the 1870s and the early 1880s. Uh, and that meant that there were literally hundreds of thousands of players and spectators who came into the game and loved the game, played the game, from the big industrial towns in, uh, in, in the North England, particular South uh, Wales. Wales. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the mining villages in Wales, I think. The, that's right. In the in the in the in the mines, in the docks, the steel mills. In a lot of places, rugby had become a blue collar sport, and this caused a lot of concern to the leaders of the Rugby Football Union, which was the governing body of the game that had been formed in 1871, because they felt that the, the game could slip from their control. And in soccer, in 1884, they had legalised professionalism in the game. Um, this is and, Association Football, I think they called their group, is that right? Yeah, well, they called... They, um, the Football Association, yeah, the Football Association was a governing body of soccer, which had been formed before the Rugby Football Union, but it had been not been very successful until the 1870s. It started to cap 1870s. Oh. Started is, is, to catch is, it true, is it true that soccer is a corruption of the word association? Yeah, you get a um, in in, in, um, in England particularly, but throughout Britain in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, there was a trend, uh, a fashion for shortening words uh, <laughs> in in the private schools, and so. Rugby became rugger. Oh yeah, you still occasionally hear. You're still here. Yeah, and association became soccer because it had SOC in the middle. Uh, and a lot of British people <laughs> think, oh, this is soccer. It's just an Americanism. I can't, you know, I, I, I can't <laughs> agree to call a game that. But in fact, it's not. It comes from Britain. That's great. So yeah, so um, so yeah, so soccer went professional, and the within. 18 months of soccer going professional, the, 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 the teams that they had from private schools, the university-based teams, they were eclipsed by what was seen as working-class teams, professional working-class teams. Mm. And the no soccer team that was composed of players from a private school or university background ever competed in the FA Cup final after that. Oh. In rugby, the guys who ran rugby thought, hang on a minute, we don't really want this to happen. We don't, mm. Otherwise, we lose control. Again. Making us look bad. And so, yeah, they decided that the, the way to stop that, to control that, was to make the game 
entirely amateur and that anybody who received any payment would be banned from playing rugby. Uh, and that led to a terrible civil war throughout the game. Well, I, I think I think I'm quoting you. There, there was the great line that I've loved for quite a while. It, it, in Wales, they pretended not to pay the players, and in England, they pretended not to notice. Was that one of yours? That's right. Yeah, they, yeah. In <laughs> in in South Wales, uh, where rugby had become yeah you know, the, the game of the population, everybody played it. It was hugely popular. Um, the um, there was a tradition, like there was there was in all the areas where rugby was popular amongst the you know blue collar industrial working class people of uh, of paying players covertly. And uh, in Wales, um, Wales refused to break away and join the, the Rebel Rugby League, which, wanted to, which paid players in the north of England. Uh, but they kind of developed this underground culture where players would receive what they call boot money <laughs> or their travel expenses, which you could get, were ridiculously inflated. Uh, and so there was a kind of modus vivendi reached between the Welsh Rugby Union and the English Rugby Union, which really wanted to stamp out any type of payments, whereby the Welsh um, the Welsh pretended that they didn't pay their players, and the English kind of turned a blind eye to that and pretended to believe that the Welsh didn't pay their players. Uh, and so that lasted for, for the best part of a century. I think you've said in many ways the Scottish were the most strict about this too. They were the most sort of wanting to sniff it out and penalise it. Is that right? Absolutely. The Scots were even more um, devoutly amateur than the, than the English were, despite the fact it was the English that had come up with the rules to, uh, to uh, outlaw professionalism. So the Scots um, did not like playing uh, touring sides. So um, they didn't like playing the, the touring All Blacks or the Wallabies or the Springboks because they felt that to go on a tour meant that you, you must be a professional because you weren't doing your job. How could you support yourself? Yeah, unless you were, you know, very privileged and could afford to pay for you know, six months off work, um, they suspected that, um, that touring sides were actually uh, being paid and they were professional. So the Scots were very, very reluctant to get involved in, in tours. And at one point, that led in 1908 to a, a break in relations between the Scottish Rugby Union and the, and the Rugby Football Union in England. Ah, I'm almost afraid to to bring it up because <laughs> I think I was actually watching and following rugby union for almost a year before I even learned that there was another sport called rugby league. Um, and it's funny too, because, you know, there is no rugby coverage in the United States. So I go to the BBC website generally to, to look for it there. It never even occurred to me that the version of the BBC site here is different than the one you look at there. So when I go to the sport section of the BBC website, Rugby union is listed. Rugby league is not listed. It's not even oh. there, <laughs> which, yeah. which people in England have said, oh, no, no, it's there. So um, really interesting. But so, of course, that was professionalism. Um, I said here, I'm almost afraid to bring it up. So one of the things that made professionalism inevitable was, of course, the money. Um, when you looked at big cup tournaments that the you know, football association was running, it seems like they were doing well with that. And then, of course, there also had emerged a form of professional rugby, uh, rugby league, which I'm still, the fact that they didn't just come up with a new name <laughs> is still baffling to me. But uh, can you talk about rugby league? Am I right in saying that you're actually a, a league fan more than a union fan? Well, I, I, was, I was born and bred in Hull, which is a rugby league hotbed. So, so yeah, it's kind of just part of my you know, natural, uh, natural tapestry of my life. So I, I, went, I was taken to my first game when I was... Uh, Seven years old, and my father was taken by his father, and his father was taken by his father. 
So yeah, it's just part. It's part. It's it's part of the blood. But I'm a scholar in both games. Um, so so rugby league really was the result of the 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 very strong clubs in the north of England where rugby was. Uh, apart from some pockets of soccer, rugby in the 1890s was the dominant game in the north of England. So, for example, uh, the cities of Manchester and Liverpool, which today we think of as being you know, the absolute heartlands of soccer, in the 1880s they were seen as, as, as rugby heartlands. Hmm. Um, but unfortunately, amateurism meant that soccer, uh, amateurism in rugby uh, meant that you know, there were no league competitions, there was no national cup competition. So rugby found it very hard to compete with soccer in some areas. Um, but in for most of the rugby clubs in uh, in the north of England, in the industrial north of England, uh, they responded to the threat of soccer partially by uh, they wanted to pay their players uh, because you know, tens of thousands of people were going to matches, going to watch cup ties, and they, um, uh, they believed that if they didn't pay their players, then... That you know, the players they would eventually to, move to soccer, to soccer yeah. which one or two, one or two did go did go over to play soccer where they could be paid openly. And then, of course, there also had emerged a form of professional rugby, uh, rugby league, which I'm still the fact that they didn't just come up with a new name <laughs> is still baffling to me. But uh, can you talk about rugby league? Am I right in saying that you're actually a, a league fan more than a union fan? Well, I, I was I was born and bred in Hull, which is a rugby league hotbed. So, so yeah, it's kind of just part of my you know natural uh, natural tapestry of my life. So, I, I went I was taken to my first game when I was uh, seven years old, and my father was taken by his father, and his father was taken by his father. And so, yeah, it's just part it's part it's it's part of the blood. But I'm a scholar in both games. Um, so, so rugby league really was the result of the 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 very strong clubs in the north of England where rugby was. Uh, apart from some pockets of soccer, rugby in the 1890s was the dominant game in the north of England. So, for example, uh, the cities of Manchester and Liverpool, which today we think of as being you know, the absolute heartlands of soccer, in the 1880s they were seen as, as, as rugby heartlands. Hmm. Um, but unfortunately, amateurism meant that soccer, uh, amateurism in rugby uh, meant that you know, there were no league competitions, there was no national cup competition. So rugby found it very hard to compete with soccer in some areas, um, but in for most of the rugby clubs in uh, in the north of England, in the industrial north of England, uh, they responded to the threat of soccer partially by uh, they wanted to pay their players uh, because you know tens of thousands of people were going to matches, going to watch cup ties, and they um, uh, they believed that if they didn't pay their players, then that you know, players they would eventually to, move to soccer, to soccer yeah. which one or two, one or two did go, did go over to play soccer where they could be paid openly. And the what, rugby what, union what, said that's was, not was, allowed. Was a, was cricket a competing animal at this point? Was that even in the on the picture? Cricket was, but cricket was seen as the traditional summer game, and so there were a lot of players okay. who who played both soccer and right, cricket right. or rugby and cricket. Um, and in fact, on the eighteen eighty eight. Uh, British rugby tour to Australia and New Zealand. Um, the the um, co-captain of that team was a, a guy called Andrew Stoddart, who was also the captain of the England cricket team. Ah. So there was a lot of links between the two. Um, really, up until really the 1960s, you still had players who played both games, one in the winter, one in the summer. Um, but in the north of England, the, um, a civil war broke out, really, between the Rugby Football Union and the industrial northern clubs, 
And that came to a head. The Northern club said, look, we think we should be allowed to pay our players what we call broken time payments, money that compensates them for the time they have to take off industrial jobs to play the game. And the rugby union said, no, no, that's not acceptable. We can't allow any form of payments. And if you pay your players, we're going to expel, we're going to expel you, uh, we're going to expel your clubs. And so the, the clubs in the North decided that, you know, they, they really had no choice. And in 18, August 1895, they, they broke away and formed what was first called the Northern Rugby Football Union, then changed its name in 1922 to, to Rugby League. And um, within a few years, within five, six years, pretty much most of the clubs in the North of England, most of the rugby clubs in the North of England had gone over to join the new Rugby League. Um, and so it allowed players to be paid, changed the rules, uh, switched from 15 aside to 13 aside, which had been a debate in rugby for quite a while. Right. Uh, and got rid of the rooks and malls and introduced uh, what's called a play the ball, whereas where a player is tackled, they're released, they get up and play the ball with their foot behind them to, uh, to a player. They're, they're, and they got rid of the lineouts to make the game faster. The, the small amount of league I've watched looks a little closer to NFL football than Union does to me because of that sort of, you can sort of see the downs, I guess, is the way to... Absolutely, yeah, it is. Uh, in many ways, uh, rugby league, you could say that it's kind of halfway between traditional rugby union and American football. Um, and a lot of the, um, a lot of coaches in rugby league see that link as being very strong in that, the idea in league is that you run hard, tackle hard, and score touchdowns. Uh, whereas in rugby union, it, it, it's slightly different to that. There's much more uh, emphasis on the set piece mm-hmm. uh, and you know building players from set pieces. So, I think Americans, or at least I, was surprised to learn that professionalism didn't actually come to rugby union until 1995. That that seems shocking, even when I say it now. Yeah. Um, do you think that was inevitable? It, it seems like the, it, you know, as soon as league happened, it seemed like the writing was on the wall, do you think? Well, initially what happened when league broke away, um, the, the rugby union authorities felt this is a really positive thing. Uh, they lost a lot of players, it weakened the England team, but they felt it was positive because in their eyes, they were still very much part of that earlier tradition of rugby was a game to educate people. Right, right. And the idea that you should make money out of it, it, it was seen as being almost mercenary. Uh, it wasn't part of the game, and so, so there, but and that many, was how many they people the were against the whole the idea game. of spectators. Is that right? Just the idea right, of yeah. having the the the, the teeming yeah. masses there. It's just That's against right. the idea. Yeah, yeah, because they felt that rub, the idea, the the principle of rugby was to play the game, to keep fit, and to learn the spirit of rugby, teamwork, fair play, and all, all the sort of moral aspects of you know still muscular Christianity, as many people saw it. And so it took many decades for that to loosen, and even in the when it really in the eight, in the 1980s, after the World Cup began in 1987, it became clear that sooner or later that professionalism would come. But there was still a huge number of people in the game who resisted that, who felt mm-hmm. that it would be a betrayal of those principles of the game, the spirit of the game, to allow professionalism. But So they, they, um, sort, of, they sort of doubled down at that point? Uh, well, they tried to, but it, by that time it was too late. Um, the World Cup was already a massive success. Uh, you know, TV companies were offering... Uh, huge amounts to televise it, uh, and the players wanted to pay in. And the other thing that happened is kind of um, the 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 set the um, the wheel of history coming around full circle was in that was that in 1995 there was a uh, a civil war broke out in rugby league between uh, in Australia, 
um, between two media moguls who wanted to buy the digital rights to rugby league. And so there were there was hundreds of millions of dollars being thrown at players. And the great fear in rugby union, particularly in Australia, was that um, uh, rugby league would buy up rugby union players because there was so much money available. Mm. And so the Australian rugby league and the New Zealand rugby league, just before the 1995 World Cup, actually approached the media companies to try and come to a deal whereby they could um, they could go professional and protect themselves from the threat wow. of losing players to, to rugby league. And which was really it would have happened anyway. Uh, it was coming. It was uh, there was nothing that could really be done to hold back the tide. Mm. This just happened to be the catalyst. It, this just this was just the uh, the thing that lit the blue touch paper. But it could have been something else at a later date. It, we would have still been where we are today. I, I think it would have come, you know, within a year or two if that had not happened. I like to think of all these different codes as sort of diaspora of that original rugby. So a lot of these codes continued to evolve often in ways that were contingent on where it was being played and other factors like that. So can you talk about the differences between, for instance, rugby union and I don't know, Aussie rules. Uh, I don't know much about it. It's uh, if you think rugby is hard to find in the U S try looking for Aussie rules football. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, um, Aussie rules is very interesting because it's it's kind of confined entirely to Australia and primarily it um, it began in one city and it dominates one city in Melbourne which is the the capital of the Australian state of Victoria and it's slowly spread out to um, to other cities in the south of Australia I mean, there's actually not that many uh, Adelaide Perth and Tasmania which is the island uh, down below um, it, it, and it derived from rugby. Um, the guy who started the first club, Tom Wills, uh, was Australian, but he'd been sent to be educated, like lots of Australians at that time, in England. He went to okay. rugby school, and he was actually the captain of the rugby cricket team. Oh. Um, but he's a keen footballer, and he came back, he played, he was a very good cricketer, he played for Melbourne Cricket Club. And he, um, in uh, 1850, 1858, I think, um, wrote a letter to one of the local papers, said, look, um, what should cricketers do during the winter when there's no cricket to play i would suggest we form a football team and so uh, melbourne uh, melbourne football club was formed and initially the first rules were, were based on those of rugby but um this is 1859 so it's way before there's any governing bodies for any sports mm -hmm. and so uh, the guys in Melbourne think, well, we can improve it. We, they had, they yeah, had tons we, of they had tons of space. I think was lots one of, the of factors. lots of lots of space, lots of time, and so like like most people when they in that period when they took up football, they started thinking about, well, how can we make it better? Uh, they didn't like rugby's offside rule, whereby you can't pass the ball forward, you can't go ahead of if, uh, can't go ahead of your own teammates, and so they uh, allowed players to go offside, and you could kick downfield to them. And so the, the kind of, um, the, the, the most important feature, the key feature, the defining wow. feature of Australian rules is that huge long kicks downfield and players jump up and catch the ball above their, their hands, uh, which is called a mark, which was a, a feature of rugby uh, for, well, in fact, people still call a mark uh, when you mm -hmm. catch the ball on the full. Yeah. Uh, in Aussie rules, it's, like, it, it's slightly more spectacular. Um, and they decided on, um, uh, very, over, over time, they moved away from scrums, so there's no scrums in the game, uh, they, there's 18 players on the side. Um, it's, it's, it's not like any other um, 
code of football that's derived from rugby. It's it's very much its own. And it's kind of a bit like, um, uh, and I'm sure my friends in Melbourne will hate me for saying this, but it's kind of like an uh, an evolutionary um, a, a branch of an evolutionary branch of the tree of football that's branched off all on its own with very little connection to any of the other types of football because obviously you can as you just said you can see the connection between uh, American football rugby league and then rugby union and so you know Canadian football of course is you know quite close to American football mm-hmm. has its has this, has very very similar roots. But Aussie Rules is kind of all out on its own. It was sort of geographically isolated. And also, it became very, very popular very, very quickly. Um, it attracted um, huge crowds in the 1860s and in many ways was the first um, well, mass spectator version of football that was played that could attract big crowds from right across the community. So it was a bit of a trailblazer in a lot of ways as well. And it was professional from the get-go or...? No, it would say, again, um, it still followed what we talked about earlier, earlier, muscular Christian principles. So until the, um, really until the 18, 80s, 1890s, there was no hint of the game, of players being paid in the game. Oh. Uh, and it's, um, it's only really, probably um, the, the major organiser, the, the key um, organiser, the governing body today is called the Australian Football League. And up until the 1980s, that was called the Victorian Football League. Uh, and it, it was only really in the, um, at the start of the 20th century, in the 1900s, that professionalism was, was accepted oh, wow. in Aussie rules. So uh, this trickle down, the, the diaspora, as I described it, it, it reaches Australia, it reaches New Zealand, basically any place um, that are sort of colonized by the English. So down in India, and uh, I think there's even Sri, Sri Lankan rugby still exists today, I've, I've seen. But of course, yeah. inevitably it, it spread to North America. I think it sort of took root in the top schools in Canada and the United States, much like in the UK. Is that is that the case? Yeah, that's right. It's it's really, the, the, the rugby derived codes of football are really a product of what we might call the English speaking world. Um, what the British called the white dominions of the empire, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. And also in many ways, despite obviously there was, this, uh, there was a war of independence against the British. Uh, many people in America there was a in conflict. the 19th century still, still felt themselves to be very closely, sure. culturally at least, part, you know, part of that English-speaking British world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they... So, uh, so Americans, um, as America developed, particularly after the Civil War, um, when it looked overseas for models, how can we develop? You know, what are the secrets of the successful nations? And when they looked at Britain, me, like many people, they saw games, British sports, as being one of the defining features of how Britain trained its youth, if you like, and kept itself healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, football, in its most generic sense, um, as you say, came to the elite schools on the East Coast in the 1850s, 1860s, in an organised way. I mean, there'd always been sort of football, informal folk football type games played. Uh, and Native Americans have their own versions as well that date back centuries. But um, the kind of modern games really do come directly from um, from Britain and Tom Brown School Days, which is a massive bestseller in, in the States as well as it was in Britain. 
Of course. So it's it's my impression that the, that legacy of these elite schools that we I think we still see that the best college level rugby union programs in the U.S. are still concentrated in the Ivy League schools for sure. Dartmouth, Yale, Brown, Penn State. Those schools have big, vibrant rugby programs. Do you think that is a legacy, or is that just a coincidence? No, that is a legacy. I, I think when you um, uh, when you look at when rugby came to the states, eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. Um, it, it takes as its model the British model, which at that point was heavily based on the private schools and the universities. And so the idea that, that rugby and then later football is an essential part of high school culture, of college culture, is, is really a, a, a uniquely American development of what was going on in, in British rugby okay in the 1860s so it's kind of um you know without tom it sounds ridiculous when you think about it but it's true without tom brown school days there would be no friday night lights it's true wow <laughs> i never wanted to draw that line that far back but I, I think it's actually solid but it's that but, school culture yeah because in rugby school and the other private schools football culture rugby culture was so strong and that was exported to america and taken up by americans and became you know even more important to the american education system than what it is in britain well i mean when it's this thing that's instilled in you that's not just a game that you play that also is sort of representative of a larger moral you of course when you come out of a program like that you want to bring that it's like knock on people's doors and hey i have good news so yeah just like rugby yeah yeah so was there an event or a significant factor or something that led these codes that have now sort of landed in Canada and the United States to then make these massive changes that we've seen now. Um, obviously, a lot of those changes are based on the idea of speeding it up. I know like the, the play the ball mentioned, uh, thing you've mentioned before was an, uh, an attempt to speed things up. Um, instituting downs, forward passes, these types of things make the game sort of faster, more, I guess they would say explosive. Um, was there something that caused those things to start to happen or was it just natural evolution? Uh, to some extent, it was natural evolution because you have a, um, um, in the 1870s when it, rugby starts to evolve very quickly into what we know as American football, introduction of downs, uh, blocking, uh, which was you kind of got in some limited form uh, in early rugby, but not to the extent that it became in the States. Mm. Um uh, those things started to come in the 1870s, and obviously, uh, yeah, I'm sure many listeners will be aware of Walter Camp and his importance to American football and the development of the rules of the game. Uh, Camp was a was a great scholar of rugby. He, uh, you know, you can look through the Camp papers at Yale, and he, you know, he looks at all the different types of rugby: rugby union, rugby league, Aussie rules, Canadian football. He's a genuine, you know, polymath of wow. the game, and he, um, uh, um, he's kind of the leader of a rugby. He's not the only person who thinks, look, how can we make rugby better for an American audience? Just in the same way in Aussie rules, they thought, how can we make rugby better for an Australian audience? Um, so camp and people in the States, but also in Canada as well, it's not just an American thing. Um, they start to tinker with the rules. And in fact, it's the Canadians who first come up with the idea of the, uh, of the line of scrimmage yeah. and the snap to move away from scrimmaging because they think that there's t- the scrimmaging goes on too long. Mm-hmm. You can't see the ball. Uh, it's no good for spectators. Um, it goes against what 
the way they want to play the game by running and passing the ball. It's too slow, uh, which is also one of the concerns that the, the rugby league teams, the teams that form the rugby league, have in in, in England. Um, so these are very so these the, the problems that people perceive as existing in rugby at that time um, are, are, are seen with Australian rules to some extent. They get rid of the scrums in in rugby league in Canada and America. And so the Canadians introduce a, uh, a no scrum game with kind of kind of like downs, but with a line of scrum, it's two lines facing each other. Uh, they play the ball backwards instead of trying to kick it forwards, as it was huh. originally in, in the scrums. Huh. And it kind, of, it kind of evolved very quickly, partly because it becomes very popular. It becomes the game of, you say, the Ivy, Ivy, League, Ivy League colleges, and they attract big crowds to their games because, you know, you know rival. Ivy League rivalry is, is has, has always been very intense, um, sure. and it becomes a symbol of um, you know sporting dominance is a symbol of uh, it's something that's to be something that uh, something that the uh, each each college wants uh, its alumni get behind it, and so and the, so this, the evolution this is, of this is all amateur. Very quickly, yeah, it all has to be amateur. I imagine too. Oh, were absolutely, there, yeah. Were there arguments about that? Were there issues about professionalism, or was it you know just Paying players, or at least giving uh, benefits to players in terms of jobs, um, giving them gifts, um, you know, providing them with opportunities to you know to do work that does to have jobs that doesn't really involve any work, uh, became very common in in college football in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, and there were constant attempts to um, uh, to to stamp it out because that was felt to be. A perversion of amateurism, right? And certainly the leaders of of, um, of American football and Walter Camp in particular were very, very strong advocates of amateurism. Oh, which is really, and that's the legacy of you know that's why the NCAA still uh, you know likes to think of itself as amateur, tries to defend its its amateur status. Wow, it, it goes all the way back to the origins of the game, so it's very much part of the part of the game's culture. Um, and it's something that they were never fully able to stamp stamp out. So this evolutionary uh, diaspora in the in Canada and the U.S. Um, I, I think I've heard you call it gridiron football, which I think is the perfect way to sort of separate it from these other forms. That's sports like the NFL, the Canadian Football League, which, again, uh, I mentioned earlier, anything you're seeing at the highest level is going to be good. <clears throat> Watching the Grey Cup is is a lot of fun. The, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's great. It's always it's almost always snowing, and it's a, it's a beautiful yeah. ceremony where they bring in the Mounties to bring the trophy in and stuff. It's great. Um, I think there's a gridiron football league in Germany still. Is that right? Do you know about that? Yeah, um, yeah, they play, they play American football um, for a whole series of historic reasons. I mean, I think mainly because the um, um, because uh, in the aftermath of well, in the aftermath of World War One, and particularly in World War Two, and the the advent of the Cold War, obviously there was a there was a huge American military presence in Germany, uh, and football was played quite extensively on military bases, and it created a lot of interest in Germany, and so. When the NFL start, um, started its European League, yeah, the the ill-fated um, NFL Europe, NFL Europe, yeah, it, it ended up with um, basically all the teams apart from one being based in Germany, and, and so the and you know there's uh, there's a handful of German players who've made it over to play in the in the CFL and one or two in the in mm -hmm. the NFL. So so the, there is a strong tradition of NFL uh, or American football uh, style football. In Germany, but it's not on the it, you know it, it 
it's probably a little bit more popular in terms of participation than rugby in Germany, but you know that that's probably debatable. I guess I guess German rugby fans would probably dispute that. But <laughs> the game has always managed to draw large crowds to you know, to, to high quality matches. So why do you think that the the gridiron version of the code hasn't really wormed its way into the UK and Europe? So and let me ask you this, and you might this might just be your feeling, but so do you think is the popularity of the NFL where you live? comparable to the popularity of rugby union here where i am in the united states yeah i think more so i mean i um uh well, the nfl on, has so much money they can probably hit you with advertisements yeah and also there's a lot of um you know there's a lot of tourists well there was before covid there was a lot of tourist traffic between uh britain and the states and people would go and see matches uh, in it, it i think you talked to you you kind of uh your average sports fan in the UK, and they're probably going to know who Tom Brady is. Mm. Uh, they will have watched the Super Bowl. They will be aware of the NFL. Some of them will be aware that it's starting this week. Whereas I don't think you're going to get that in states. Um, no, even Jonah Lamu, uh, he's not a name I heard before I started watching. Yeah, um, partly because the NFL has done a great job in publicizing it. It's, it started to be televised regularly in the UK in the 1980s mm. and it acquired a kind of cult following and then the nfl europe started and yeah for the last i don't yeah, know maybe but, 10 years there's been there's been games you know, yeah NFL the london games the london regular games, season so, games which so, somehow london, we, yeah. we, somehow we always managed to send two of the worst teams i, I just don't know yeah what, hey what it the, doesn't matter to the brits they still turn out yeah it seems like that but i, I just feel like they're not doing themselves any favors <laughs> it's like okay it's another, great, i've got to say, i've got to say you go and there's a lot of people uh, there's actually a lot of americans have come over uh for a weekend you know a weekend oh. uh, it's a great tour. It's it's a great tourist attraction. <laughs> you go go visit England, and so then you go to London and you go to an NFL game. That that's like going to yeah. The, you can go watch the Jaguars get beaten. Yeah. <laughs> it's like going to the the McDonald's in downtown Tokyo. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But so it's so the NFL has done a great job in in um, uh, in publicising the game in Britain and in Europe. But also, I guess it's partly because the um, you know the world's become a smaller place over the last twenty years. Mm. Satellite TV means. You know, I can sit here in Leeds in the north of England and I can watch every type of football. If I, if, if I can pay for it, I can watch rugby union from all around the world, rugby league from all around the world, the NFL, college football, the CFL, Aussie rules, Gaelic football. Yeah, I can watch everything. And, wow. you know, there are a lot of people who do. League is simply not available here because obviously I've spent a lot of time. I, I follow multiple union leagues so yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm watching Super Rugby. I'm watching the Pro 14. I'm watching the Prem. I'm watching Major League Rugby. Uh, there is no league available. I just can't find it. You can go on YouTube and find things, obviously, but that's yeah, not I don't thing. know what's happening with the TV contracts. I mean, the, the NRL, the Australian League, is is a huge league, along with the Australian Football League, the Aussie Rules League. It's, it's one of the two dominant leagues in Australia, and they they play to a very very high standard. Uh, football in Britain, the home of the game, uh, the top professional league is called the Super League. Uh, not quite the same level as the Australians, but uh, it's you know it's it, it's a great spectacle. Um, but yeah, I don't know what's happening with the TV contracts around the world. Well, the the league I wish I could follow is the French Top Fourteen. That just seems like such great quality stuff. And it, again, it's just unfindable. Here. Really, I'm surprised at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting because there's something interesting about watching a rugby either code in French stadiums. There's a more yeah. 
It's it's different from what it's different from watching the game anywhere else in the world. Oh, There's a particular French it. quality to it. Well, they bring yeah. the marching bands in there. Yeah, playing the drum. Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, it's a real <laughs> community sport. Yeah. So after at least a couple of unsuccessful attempts to build professional rugby here in the United States, it looks like it's finally working. I'd say. So I myself am a founding member and a season ticket holder for my New England Free Jacks in Major League Rugby. Uh, the fact that they made it through the worst period of COVID and came back stronger, I think that bodes really well for the league. Do you do you agree about that? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's uh, it survived. And I think that's a big thing uh, with COVID. And also, just in general, the the, the inevitable financial difficulties that startup well, leagues have. The owners took a bath because when, when COVID happened, so it's funny, I'm, I'm wearing, right now I'm wearing the shirt, it's, it's my Free Jacks inaugural, uh, inaugural season first day shirt which was scheduled to be March 14th, 2020. Massachusetts locked down on March 13th. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, uh, but the owners got together and they said, you know what, if we cancel these contracts for these players, they're just going to disappear and we're going to be starting over. So they paid every one of those contracts. So if you, you weren't playing rugby, but you were getting paid, I think that was a, a pretty bold move. And I think it's paid off. Yeah, and I think that's the thing that's needed because it's, it's commitment. It's long-term commitment that's needed to build the sport because um uh, you know people think well you set up a league people come along to see it and all your problems are solved it's not it takes a long long time to get people to come and watch a team consistently to to buy into a team to feel that the team is part of their lives so they're gonna they're, they're gonna go and watch games they're gonna take people along to games uh, and that requires a lot of commitment from the owners a lot of commitment from the league and and making a lot of hard decisions and i think you know, it's Major League Rugby. I've got to say, I'm quite surprised that it survives as well as it has done. Because not because yeah. of anything, any problem I've got with it, but no. just because of the track record. I mean, for example, the British Rugby League, the Super League, um, had a team in Toronto, uh, right. which was uh, uh, had been promoted through the various leagues, was doing pretty well, and then COVID came and it basically collapsed, and it doesn't exist Is it in the, that format anymore. The Wolfpack, is that right? Yeah, the Wolfpack, Toronto Wolfpack. Are they the um, one? That, didn't they hire Izzy? Wasn't he on their team? Yeah, Sonny Bill Williams. They got yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, not, that, not that I would confuse those guys. I just had that wrong. Yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, 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 and partly because they, you know, trying to compete in a transatlantic league when uh, you know countries are stopping people from traveling is uh, is pretty impossible. Well, I swear. So when, yeah, when, so Major League Rugby the, has done a great job. Yeah. When I heard of the Toronto Wolfpack, I thought there's got to be a Toronto in England. This has to be another one of those things where yeah. we, we just stole the name from an English town. But now I, I had no idea there was a transatlantic uh, league. They they, did, they played for three seasons, did really well, and then COVID came and. Uh, they had, yeah, you know, like all teams, they have a lot. They had a lot. They had financial problems, structural problems, all the rest of it. Sure. But COVID basically, but COVID basically just made those uh, made those worse, and it was impossible to carry on. For example, the British Rugby League, the Super League, um, had a team in Toronto, uh, right. which was uh, uh, had been promoted through the various leagues, was doing pretty well, and then COVID came and it basically collapsed, and it doesn't exist Is that in the, that format anymore. The Wolfpack, is that right? Yeah, the Wolfpack, Toronto Wolfpack. Are they the uh, one? Didn't they hire Izzy? Wasn't he on their team? Yeah, Sonny Bill Williams. They got yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, not, uh, that, not that I would confuse those guys. I just had that wrong. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, 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 and partly because they, you know, trying to compete in a transatlantic league when uh, 
you know, countries are stopping people from traveling is uh, is pretty impossible. Well, I swear. So when, yeah, when so I, Major League Rugby the, has done a great job. Yeah. When I heard of the Toronto Wolfpack, I thought there's got to be a Toronto in England. This has to be another one of those things where yeah. we, we just stole the name from an English town. But now I, I had no idea there was a transatlantic no, league. They they, did, they played for three seasons, did really well, and then COVID came and. Uh, they had, you know, like all teams, they have a lot. They had a lot. They had financial problems, structural problems, all the rest of it. Sure. But COVID basically, COVID basically just made those uh, made those worse, and it was impossible to carry on. So Major League Rugby, I I think, you know, it's to to have got to this stage uh, and still be pretty much intact. It, it it's done a really good job. I'm really happy with it. I'm, I think next season is going to be even stronger for sure. Um, so I'm gonna. I won't go to the the sleeping giant question. I think that's a little played out, but just what's your estimation? How big do you think rugby could conceivably get over here? So would it, do you think it'll ever rival the, you know, the, the big ones, the major league baseball, the NBA, or even the NHL, by the way, you had a great pod once about how, you know, is the NHL football's forgotten code. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But or maybe, or is Major League Soccer, um, they've grown pretty consistently over the years. Um, is that more of a realistic model for rugby? I think I'm, a, I'm always accused of being a pessimist when people ask me this question about the capacity of rugby to, or, or other sports to expand into, into new countries in a, in a really meaningful way. Because I think it's very difficult. Two reasons. One, when rugby and the other football games became embedded in national cultures where people um, uh, took them to the hearts and they became a part of their lives, part of their identity. It was in a very particular historical moment in the 19th century when uh, towns were just beginning, people flooded into towns, they found a new way of relating to people. And in the States, the NFL and Major League Baseball filled that gap for people. Uh, sorry, well, college football initially, then the NFL. Um, and so rugby has an uphill battle to compete mm. against the incumbent sports. And that's yeah. incredibly difficult because, you know, you know, I could be a rusted on Philadelphia Eagles fan. Uh, you know, my, my father could have taken me and his father could have taken him, just what I've said happened to me in, in rugby. And so it's very difficult for me to switch allegiances and think, you know, uh, a, a rugby team in Philly is going to be, is going to play that role. Um, the other problem is that for Major League, the amount of money that Major League Soccer pour, has poured into the States over the past 40 years is phenomenal. Oh. Um, I think that's beyond the capacity, probably even of the NFL, to pour that amount of money in for such a long time. Uh, and also, obviously, in, um, uh, in the States, soccer has an advantage in that um, for many people in the Hispanic-speaking community, Soccer is their first game, their traditional first game. So it's already sure. got that. It's already got that inbuilt um, affinity, emotional resonance with people. But having said that, I don't think that's that's necessarily. You know, there's still space for rugby to get bigger and bigger. I don't think it's ever going to. You know, I don't think the MLR, MLR Championship is ever going to be as big as the Super Bowl. But there's space there. There's a. It's a big country. And it's the same in other countries as well. There's always space to develop the game to a much bigger extent than it is now. That doesn't mean to say it's going to be one of the big four sports or that it's ever going to challenge them, or even that it should. I mean, I think one of the things about um, one of the things about the games that come from rugby, in, op- in contrast to soccer, 
is that each one of them are different. And the countries that you go and watch them in or play them in, there's always a slight variation. And that's what makes it so interesting. Mm. As you just talking about France, you go to France and rugby is very different there from what it is in other countries. You, you go to Japan or you know, even, you know, even Australia, New Zealand, there's, there's big differences in the way that the game's perceived and how they... Uh, and how people relate to it. And I think that's a good thing. And so just because rugby will probably never be a top four sport for a whole variety of reasons in the States, there's no reason to white cap in the next four mm. or white cap grow and develop its own its own niche, which in a country the size of the States will be a big niche yeah. that will enable it to have a big impact on international rugby. Because I think that's the other point as well. The most important thing is to have a competitive national team because you know the world it's a cliche the world is becoming globalized world cups international competition are more important than they've ever been and so if you can get a strong u.s eagles mm-hmm. strong american rugby league team whatever it's got to be good for the game and it just brings more people and it helps to helps to develop that base the uh, olympic and, and take the, the olympic game a bit better i think the yeah. olympic sevens got some extra recognition going there i feel like that lit some sparks as well Absolutely. And I think that's true in a lot of countries as well. It's, it's really given an impetus to rugby in countries where it's not really, uh, it's not really been very powerful and, and there's lag behind other spots. But having the, uh, the stamp of approval of the Olympics is a mm-hmm. massive, a massive advantage. Well, I think you'd be the one to, to verify this. I think so. Rugby union was played as an Olympic sport. And the last time that happened, the United States, I believe, won the gold medal. So I think... Olympic wise, yes. we are still the world champions and probably always will be. <laughs> Double champions, absolutely. Double champions. Yeah, in 1920 uh, at Antwerp in Belgium, um, America won the, the gold medal, uh, beat France. And in 1924 in Paris, um, America beat France to, uh, to win the gold medal again. So, yeah, uh, I think it's probably the case that the States is going to be the perpetual um, rugby 15 Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> I think so. Well, there, and the, I don't know if you've uh, if this has come up on your radar, but there's a, a new program. So there was an MLR team, the the Glendale Raptors in Colorado. They kind of intentionally disbanded themselves even before COVID, and it seemed confusing. But I think what they've done is reimagined themselves as a place. So they have a new program called the Glendale 15s, and it's like they want to take these college football players who are incredible athletes, but who aren't going to make it to the NFL and sort of try to bring them into rugby and sort of take the, this huge wellspring of talent we have, that's not going to become in those, those yeah. big four sports, like you mentioned, and they, their stated goal is to win the 2027 world cup. Um, that sounds pretty far-fetched to me, wow. but I love the fact that that's their stated purpose and that they're, you know, that, that that's where they're working. Well, that's, I mean, and there's precedent for that because that's essentially what happened in 1920, 1924, because, most of the players on the American team, some had played rugby uh, on the West Coast when there was a short period of right. eight or nine years when uh, Stanford and Cal mm-hmm. switched from football to rugby. And so some of them had a background in, in rugby, but most of them were were, uh, were college football players. And one of the reasons why they won was because they, um, they were such superb athletes and they could adapt quickly and they could overcome a team that was as good as France at the time. I mean, France wasn't the France that it is today, 1924, right. but it was still an experienced rugby nation. And so, so yeah, maybe that's the model. Uh, you get some, you know, you get some really skilled, really, um, really athletic guys who play, who played college football, spend a few years training them, and uh, 
then let them loose on the rest of the rugby world. The, the experts I talk to about it say the hard part is always going to be unlearning all the stuff because the, the reason you get really good at any sport is because of the specific, the detail yeah. things that you, and those are the things you learn by starting that sport when you're six, as opposed to 16 or 22. So it, it's going to be an uphill battle. I'm sure taking a, a 20 or a 22 year old who's been playing football since he was a little kid and say, okay, no, 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 you can't, you can't pass it forward. You know, you can't, you can't block. Yeah. <laughs> those yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, and, and obviously that's one of the things that's changed since 1920, 1924 is that rugby itself has developed and become much more sophisticated. And clearly when you're a player at that level, you operate on instinct. You react in a fraction of a second uh, because your muscle memory has been honed over many years. So that that will be a problem for players to switch from uh, um, uh, football to, to rugby, as it would as it is the other way as well. I mean, there's been plenty of rugby sure. players who tried to give uh, uh, football a go and not uh, not succeeded so it, it's it's a tough ask uh, yeah. but it's not impossible well we, we've got the Scottish hammer on the Cleveland Browns right now the, uh, the the punter I think he's making at least as much money as he could if yeah. he was you know one of the top yeah, five yeah. players in rugby in the world yeah so. well, yeah yeah so some <laughs> some skills are transferable yeah so uh, I've been talking to you for quite a while now it's just been so awesome C- can I ask you a quick a quick couple of questions just to before sure, yeah. you go so um, you have mentioned that you're a league fan and you mentioned that a lot of that is just because of how you grew up and it sort of it was part of your upbringing, part of your family. But is there an aspect of it, is it when you go to see a league game versus a union game, is there some piece of the game that makes you go, ah, that's what I'm looking for. That's why I prefer this code. Well, I think I don't want to get into, you know, which game is better because I think, you know, like, no. like beauty, it's in the eye of the beholder and uh, both games have got a lot going for them. Uh, for me, I think that essentially, if I what really appeals to me about rugby league over rugby union is that the if you like the basic skills of rugby as a whole of passing, running with the ball, uh, uh, and I think most rugby union uh, people will admit this in league they're much uh, much more developed. Um, oh. The the hand skills um, and the um, uh, the speed at which players think and their ability to distribute the ball, whatever position they play, is at a higher level than the union. And I think partly that's just because the nature of the game is in the union, there's a lot more set pieces. Um, it's it's a it's a, in a sense it's a much more structured game. So those those type of skills are important, but they don't play such an absolute central role that they they play in rugby league. Um, and it always, you know, again. It's the eye of the beholder, but to me, it's it's a much faster, uh, much more exciting game. Mm. Union can be, don't get me wrong, um, Union can be, but I think sometimes rugby union's rules allow it to become quite a, um, can allow it to become quite stodgy. I mean, I think the the, the recent Lions series against mm. South Africa mm. was not a great advert for the game because it was easy for both sides to block each other, you know, to negate each other and block each other out, which is... Mm. Um, you know, league has its problems as well in terms of its rules, but I, I, you know, it's it, it tends to be a much more fluid game. So, so that that's what you know. So that's how I see it in kind of technical sense. But I think ultimately, it's down to you know what sport means to people as an individual. And for me, it's how I was brought up. It's part of my family. It's just part of the tapestry of life. And you know, I can appreciate a good union game. And you know. I got to watch Union, um, but league, its combination of skills and what it means to me as an individual, um, 
that's what gets it for me. And I think that's probably true for most other people with their sport, no matter what pro, you know, what, what you see on the pits. There's also a whole other dimension of what it means to you as an individual and to, mm-hmm. to, to who you are. So, yeah, so it's a combination of things. When I first learned of the existence of rugby league, when I first learned that there was, in fact, two sports called rugby, I thought, okay, wait, I got to figure out what the differences are. Again, it's unavailable here to watch games, but you can, of course, look up things on YouTube and just kind of and look up descriptions of the rules and that kind of thing. And it seemed like the advertising, it reminded me of the NFL before concussions became an issue or before people were aware it was an issue because all the the ads seem to be like rugby league kapow yeah, yeah the big hits the big smashing hits but then the there was a couple of years ago i guess there was talk about maybe we do a, a code breakers type of thing where we have the wallabies play the kangaroos and, and you know play one code then the other and have a, a double header kind of thing and everyone talking about it at the time said you just can't do that because the league players are just not big enough. They would just get obliterated by the union players. And I was thinking, wait, the league that advertises the huge hits, their players aren't big enough to, to play with the union guys. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? It seems very uh, weird. No, it's, no, I think the, the, the difference is within the set piece in the scrum, because scrums don't really play much of a role in rugby league. And they're basically a quick way to restart the game. Obviously in rugby union, they're a major part of the game and it's highly skillful uh, highly specialised, and it, you know there's a level of um, force involved in that that you would never get in a in a rugby league match. And so, um, you know, so a, in a, in a scrum, a, a rugby union team would just trample all over a rugby league team. But wouldn't um, wouldn't the union team be equally disadvantaged playing league? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the problem with these ideas um, to have you know the kangaroos versus the wallabies. Or you know the All Blacks versus the Kangaroos, which is also suggested that they they are two quite different games, despite their appearances. Uh, you know, same ball, same chip post. They're quite different. And so, what's happened in the past is that when when we've had these Union versus League contests, um, in the match under Union rules, the Union team has won easily, and in the match under League rules, the League team has won easily. Yeah, and it demonstrates nothing other than rugby league teams are better at rugby league than <laughs> rugby union teams, and rugby union teams are better at rugby union than rugby league teams. And so you can, again, see, it's it's you can't really compare them. I mean, I think the, um, uh, I mean, the, the the most famous example was in just after rugby union went professional. Um, Wigan, who were then the uh, the champions in Britain, played Bath, who were then the, the Wigan were the rugby league champions, Bath were the rugby union champions. And the first game was under league rules. Wigan won very easily. The second game was under union rules. Bath won easily as well. Um, and it didn't really prove anything. Yeah. They're, other than the fact they are quite different games and they require different skill sets. And um, and that's what, and I think that that's one of the reasons why you know I don't like to get involved in. You know, which game is really the best one or, or whatever. There of are course. games you prefer and the games you like. Yeah. But they're two different games. It's like saying, you know, do you prefer the NFL to Aussie rules? Well, well, and like you've been saying, yeah. when you, especially at the test level, the level of skills you've got to have are so high. And yeah, like you've been saying, that, that only comes from all that time and experience. So, of course, you can't just ask somebody who's the best rugby league player to turn around and learn how to scrum. You know, it's, yeah. just no, it's not going to work. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's it's, and I think that's you know, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, I don't, you know, when people say, oh, the, the rugby league and rugby should merge or whatever, 
No, um, it's one of the great things that we've just been talking about is that the game that started at rugby school has split off into all different directions and lots of really interesting different games that are really exciting and enjoyable. Whichever one you prefer, they're, but they're all they're all pretty good games and all deserve uh, uh, yeah all deserve to be successful. Do you have a favorite game that you've ever attended in person? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, several. Um, one all, of the problems. All, all league matches or? Yeah, I think so. I'll tell yeah, because again, it comes back to kind of the emotional resonance. And one of the problems in rugby league is that Australia is the dominant nation and Great Britain, which used to be the dominant nation, hasn't beaten Australia in a test series, a three match test series since 1970. Whoa. 52 years yeah <laughs> it's, and i i am just old enough i was seven years old at the time i remember when it happened oh. and in 1990 that must be had, yeah great britain <laughs> had his fantastic team in 1980 the Austra- in 1990 australia toured uh britain won the first test match and then in the second test um it was a really close game and australia were dominating 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 it passed the ball that wide. It looked like it was going to be a try. It was intercepted by a British player who ran the length of the field to score and put Britain in the lead. And I have never been in a sporting crowd of any game, any code, uh, where you could sense the crowd drop, it breathed in all at once. Because <laughs> this was almost like, after all this time, there was a chance that Britain could win a test series. As it turned out, they lost in the last minute. So ah. it was even more disappointing. And I remember the first time I went to Australia in the late 1990s, I got in a taxi on the second day there. And the guy said, oh, you're a pommy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember watching the, do you, do you remember that test match when uh, we won in the last minute? I said, yeah, I was there. You said, you said yeah. let me out. Yeah. And so that, <laughs> and again, it's because, you know, it's, it's not so much that it was a fantastic, um, it was a great game, but it's not so much the quality of the game because of what it meant and to what it meant to all those people there as well. That at last, you know, Britain might actually win a test series against Australia after all these years. And it's, it's that fantastic feeling of being in a stadium with thousands of other people and you're all thinking the same thing at precisely the right moment. And that's, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why we go and watch sport, why we go and watch rugby or whatever football game you, you watch because you know you identify with the team and there are some moments when that identification with the team it you're part of one huge mass of people who are, are all having that same emotional response as you are at that very moment and it's an unbeatable feeling it's, it's funny too because so many people have been talking about how the lack of crowds has impacted the game over the last 18 months now or whatever it is and obviously that's a big part of it but it's also on the uh, the crowd that's not in the stadium too, because yeah, going to watch the NFL in a bar with your friends is so much better than sitting and watching yeah. it by yourself. Because well, first of all, because for every one minute of action, there's two minutes of commercials. But when you're there yeah. with a group of people all experiencing it, it's like something happens, they go to commercial, and then you discuss it, and you can say, "Oh, okay, did you see that? Did you notice this thing?" And then everyone's back. That's missing from the experience, at least as much as the people, you know, seeing yeah. people in the stadium, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the thing about sport. We go to watch sport because it's a collective experience, whether you're in the stadium or you're in a bar or, or, or wherever. 
um, it's it allows you to connect to people and you get that, you know, you're sharing your emotions in a way that, it's, it, you know, there are very few times, certainly sort of part of in, in the intent world, where you can, where that, where you get that experience of sharing your emotions and the highs and lows of watching a, you know, watching a game, watching your team. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, nothing else other than sport can offer. Well, it, it always, it reminds me what you're talking about, the experience of great art too. If you go to see live opera or a great play yeah. or a great musical, the difference being you go in there knowing it's scripted. Uh, there's a beginning, yeah. middle and end that has already been decided. A sporting event is always completely open-ended in some ways. Yeah, that's right. It's the other way. Yeah, you can get the same emotional response. You say, going, you're going to, you know, going to, um, going to a Puccini opera or watching Shakespeare or whatever you want. Uh, you can get that emotional, but you know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of sport is that it's the one form of entertainment where you don't know what's going to happen. And yeah, that's, yeah. What's, that's what makes it so powerful. Yeah, and the, somehow the experience of seeing something that's just unbelievable that you thought you would never see and then and sharing it with other people who feel the same way. Yeah. So obviously, the, yeah. the, coll the collective aspect is just so important. Yeah. So uh, only one or I think this is the very last thing. So where do you think that rugby union is right now in terms of its own evolution? So we're seeing lots of new laws based on player safety, high tackle laws. Um, these new trial rules are coming out also, the 50-22 rule. Um, they're timing kickers on conversions in particular, new rules about jackling. So what's your take? Uh, where does the, uh, does the brand we're watching right now look good to you? Um, Sounds like no, not, based on the Lions series. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, the, I, th I think that the Lions series highlights one of the problems with the rules that it is, it's, if you have a strong team, like the Springboks, you can kill a game off and force people to play your way. And that, really rules out the the creative aspects of the game which which i, I think is unfortunate uh, but i do think that some of the new rules you say the 50 22 uh um timing of kickers try and speed the game up it's also noticeable that the number of scrums and lineouts in the game have decreased tremendously over the past 20 to 30 oh. years so um, they introduced the 50 22 to super rugby a couple of seasons ago and it was like nobody told anyone so that yeah. nobody, nobody tried it it was like the fifth game of the season when somebody tried it and even the comms were confused but then this weekend uh you know it's being trialed and the usa played canada and the usa did it twice successfully and i think in the yeah. same half it's a great innovation yeah you get it in, in, in rugby league you've had a very similar for quite a while now called the 40 20 where it's the same principle you kick inside of 20 out uh, within 20 meters uh and you get it in uh, over there it's, sorry you kick within your 40 meter zone and he gets it, if you get you get the ball back and you get it in the um, within 20 meters of your opponent's line. Um, and what it's done is that a it's made kicking uh, it's increased the skill level in kicking, but also it means that there's more space for the players because you know the wingers have to drop back more to cover the kick. And I think that's one of the great. I things heard that, that was the real reason behind that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it will you leave an extra guy back. That's right. So open it, it will open up the play and make play. Uh, a little more uh, unpredictable, particularly if you've got a really accurate kicker. So I think uh, I'm quite interested to see how that uh, how that develops. Um, I think oddly, although we're just saying how different the two games are, I think that there's, you know, rugby union to some extent is going down a similar path that rugby league has gone down in terms of trying to make the game more attractive, speed it up, get rid of the sort of um, unattractive elements. So I don't think the two games will come together, but I think that um, rugby union will become more open 
and more exciting to watch. Um, however, I think that, as you've hinted at, I think one of the big issues that, that is facing all the rugby, rugby uh, derived codes is the um, concussion crisis and head injuries. Mm. Um, the research that's been done now is, is not only, well, hey, obviously concussion is, is a major issue and there's, there's a big court case going on in Britain at the moment over that. But also now there's evidence that's come, that appears to be coming to light from uh, new research about the uh, the impact of just uh, repeated um, collisions, not yeah. uh, not just head, not just head injuries, just uh, general collisions in a tackle, which may also have a long term effect on on brain health. So, I think this is you know, and this is as true for rugby as it is for rugby league Aussie rules, uh, um, NFL, CFL. So, I, I think that there's going to have to be some hard thinking about how the game develops uh, over over the next period and whether there needs to be some radical rethinking of uh, how tackling is carried out, mm. um, the distance that players are, the number of substitutes that are allowed. Um, in a sense, the problem is... Um, you know, we now have incredibly highly trained athletes playing a game that was originally for schoolboys, but whose rules have really not changed very much over the last 40 to 50 years. And I think that there may be some fundamental changes a bit further down the line if it's proved that you know, constant collisions, as you get in rugby games, um, is also very, uh, uh, very injurious, injurious to, to health. Well, I, I wonder too, because, you know, people are arguing hotly about this now and you, you hear people say, well, if I choose to play a dangerous game, that's my choice and it's up to me. And obviously that's true, but you can argue, I think David Flatman was talking about this, like, if you're a young person playing rugby and somebody says, is this is dangerous, you know, this could have long term effects, you think, yeah maybe I'll have a limp when I'm old or, you know, maybe I'll break my ankle yeah. a few times and I'll have some casts and stuff like that. You don't think, I don't know if I'm going to recognize my wife one day when I come home. And so yeah. I feel like it's the parents ultimately who are deciding to let their kids play these sports or not. My, my son is five and I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. Fortunately, he couldn't care less and has no interest. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not going to come yeah. up. It doesn't seem like, but uh I think it's going to, when parents become so nervous about it, that they're saying, no, 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 you can't do that. I think that for the NFL, that's a big thing that they're worried about. And I wonder if the same thing will happen in rugby, though a lot of people talk about how the NFL is a lot more dangerous than rugby, but you know. Yeah, uh, yeah I think that, well, that that's possibly true because clearly, you know, contact, although it's been uh, outlawed in the NFL, contact to the head. Uh, it was, you know, was seen as a, a viable um, tactic in the NFL for a long time, whereas it wasn't in rugby. Um, but I do think that, as you said, there's a problem when you're... It's okay to say, well, people knew what the risks were. Maybe that's true 40 years ago, but even then, I'm not so sure. Nobody understands, the, as you said, nobody understands the risks of repeated head injury and whether, even if they did, whether someone could consent to that at an early age, I think is uh, yeah. It, it, yeah that that's not realistic. It's not. Yeah. If it's not says, acceptable. It's a, hey, if you're little, 25, little, little Johnny, would you like to mortgage your future? I don't think. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mortgage my what good. now? 
Yeah, I think that that is is going to, that is going to be a big issue, and I think that who knows um, in future generations it may be the case that it's not uh, rugby 15s that are the main form of the game. It actually oh. becomes sevens because it's less uh, it's less dangerous, and oh. that would you know that fundamentally alters the nature of the game because clearly for you know people of recent generations and past generations, it's the physical intensity and the contact that rugby offers, whether you're playing it or watching, that's one of its appealing features. And if that appealing feature is demonstrated that it's uh, it's incredibly dangerous, then um, then that will, that will go because there's no way that uh, people can consent to that and become top line rugby players because of the the training that that's that's involved from a young age. So so yeah, it's a it's 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 a the game is facing as are all games is facing a tricky time, and it's also true of soccer. Heading the ball in soccer has become a massive issue. So for sure, it could be the case that sports as we you know team sports as we know them as we've known them over the past 150 years, maybe we're now on the cusp of quite fundamental changes to them. It's interesting too. So you know, as a new fan in 2017, I, I'm starting to watch and watching as many games as I can. And everybody told me, well, when you go see it in person, it's going to be a whole different experience because the sound, the, that impact, the yeah. body on body impact that you could hear in person, it, they just, there's no audio that gets it right on television. It, you can't experience it until you're sitting there. And sure enough, I went and that was exactly my experience. Yeah. And I, ta- I talked to my uh, rugby hall of fame friend and I, I said to her you know when you hear those things you realize what it must feel like out there and I, all i could think was you gotta want to hit people you gotta want yeah. that impact and she said oh yeah that's the whole thing she said the, the first time i tackled somebody really hard i thought "Ooh, i think this is for me and then the first time somebody yeah, tackled yeah. me really hard i said i gotta get more of this so yeah. you know, maybe it's just a, a personality type i guess <laughs> yeah but it's true you've got to want that to, to be a top player um, because you can't shy away from it, because people will sense that you're uh, um, you don't you don't want to be tackled, and uh, they're going to target you. So yeah, and I yeah, I think it's just it's like any other really athlete. You've really got to be prepared to do whatever it takes to get there. And you know those big hits are a part, uh, you know, a massive part of the game, whether it's men's or uh, men's or women's rugby. Oh, uh, we were talking a lot, too, about um, the sort of legacy of the classism that's sort of built into rugby. And I've heard a lot of talk of the last year, especially um, how uh, especially players of color sort of feel marginalized in some ways. I think Ellis Genge has been really vocal and said some really interesting stuff. And I think it was through him I came across this stat about thinking. So if you live in the UK right now, um, something like seven percent of the people went to what we would in America call a private school or one of these posh elite schools. But if you're playing professional rugby, 37% of the people on your team probably went to those schools, which again, it's not, it's not even half, but that's a big difference. You, you know, is that, is that a big legacy that p- people are still dealing with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in, 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 in England and Australia, where you have you know, both rugby union and rugby league, then that class difference is, is absolutely evident whenever you go to games. Um, so, I mean, I think when I um, when I did my book on, book on the history of English rugby union, I think it was a case that up until 1995, when the game turned professional, uh, it was something like maybe uh, 80% of all England players had been privately educated. Wow. And in comparison, for the 
British Rugby League team, um, there are only four players, I think, off the top of my head, maybe five, say, five, five players in its entire history who had played international rugby league, who had been privately educated. So wow. at any given point, there were more privately educated players in the England team in any match you care to make than had ever played for, for, um, for the British national rugby league team. And so similar in Australia as well. Um, so, yeah, and I think in, um, uh, in the, particularly in England and um, in Australia, uh, the games are still seen very much as class-based games. Huh. Rugby league is a working class game. Rugby union is a middle class game. Uh, that draw. I mean, slightly different in various areas. I mean, South Wales is it, the game is played by all classes, um, uh, as it is in New Zealand. But certainly in England, Australia, they you you ask anybody what the difference between the two games are, and most people will at some point say, well, one isn't one working class and the other middle class. Wow. So that's still very very strong, and it's part of that legacy of muscular Christianity. Uh, the way in which the leaders of rugby union try to protect the game and it's it's the original spirit of rugby from it being taken over by you know industrial workers in the north of England, similar and similarly in Australia as well. So, yeah, it's very much a, rugby league is very much a blue collar sport. Uh, rugby union is seen as being either a you know, a white collar sport or a sport of of all classes that everybody plays. It's funny, Tom Brown School Days. This notion of muscular Christianity. Have you ever thought about it, it? It almost seems directly lifted from Socrates to me. He talks a lot about how if you spend all your time working on your body, you will have a terrible life. If you spend all your time working on your mind, you will have a terrible life. You need to split it and work equally on those two things. It really feels like just kind of a logical descendant of that idea. Do you, do you ever think? Yeah, about that absolutely. Or? No, absolutely. I mean, I think the um, um, the the English private schools in the in the nineteenth century. They, most of their curriculum was based on um, the Latin and Greek classics. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Socrates and Aristotle would have, you know, were studied in, in, in schools. And so a lot of the ideas that were used to train the, the boys who went to those schools to train them to become the leaders of, of Britain and the British Empire sure. came, came from uh, Greek educational principles. So, yeah, it's, it's very similar. And so the, the phrase that became... Uh, that became commonly used in rugby circles and, you know, and sports circles in general in, in Britain in the 19th century uh, was a healthy mind in a healthy body. Mm-hmm. You know, comes from Juvenal, the, the Roman writer. Um, and that was seen as the ideal that you would be both, you know, you would play sports, but you would also be, you know, you would have a healthy mind at the same time. And, you know, and in a lot of ways, that's still... Um, that's still seen as one of the positives of rugby union, which is, which is why in, in many sure. private schools in, in, uh, in the English speaking world, if you see um, you know, commercials for them or their prospectuses, they'll often have pictures of people playing rugby union on them because it kind of, it's a marker of the, 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 the school's adherence to those traditional principles. And if you take, if you take the religion out of it, it's still a, pretty good idea <laughs> you, know, it's, 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 you, you should spend time on both right <laughs> you do want to be the best you you can be i think yeah absolutely and i think but and i think one of the one of the issues i've i've argued is that a lot of the a lot of the things that were converted into principles uh for uh, by by the rugby authorities and the sports authorities in the 19th century were actually common sense and people use them anyway <laughs> yeah. the notion of fair play teamwork 
You yes. have to have these things to play sport. It's, there's no moral. Uh, <laughs> uh, th- th- there's no moral imperative that you have to do this just because you're playing a particular sport. And so they were kind of, in a sense, they were codified into muscular Christianity as a way of demonstrating the superiority of British sports to uh, to the rest of the world. So, um, but yeah, you've got to. Yeah, they are good things because every that's what you have to do if you want to play a game. You know, you've got to you've got to play by these un- unwritten rules. Otherwise, there's no game. Nobody yeah. wants to. Okay, the very, very last one, and this is the only one that you might just might be out of left field. Who do you have winning the next Rugby World Cup? I know it's early. Yeah. I, I'm already putting my chips on France. I think the, the fact that they're home, the ages of their players, how good they are, how much depth they have right now, I think, uh, I think it's Francis to, Francis to lose. Yeah, potentially, although they've become so inconsistent. Um, over the last twenty years, it's but difficult. Hasn't that changed in the last few? Don't you think? It's 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 cha- it's changing a bit, but they've uh, yeah they they you know they're a, well top four five nation, but they it's a while since they've they've really played consistently at that level. I mean, it, yeah, it'd be great if they if they do. I mean, uh, and I would imagine there's a lot of energy being put into making sure they do perform at the World Cup because it's certainly. Um, uh, going back to 2007, um, the French were so disappointed that they, they didn't get the final. Um, so, well, yeah, so I, I think I, they've got to be in the mix. As a Scotland fan, I think it was not this Six Nations, but the one before, if Hawass hadn't crazily thrown a punch, <laughs> that would have yeah. been a much worse game for us. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think France have got to be in the mix. Um, the All Blacks, although they had a disappointing World Cup, by their standards, yeah, um, it's hard to know where they are right now because they're just yeah. spending all their time beating up on the Aussies, and that doesn't look too tough. Yeah, right it's now. not. Yeah, and it's kind of because of COVID, they've been isolated, and yeah, you know, the rugby championship isn't. You know, it's still affected by COVID in the Southern Hemisphere. So, so yeah, it's it's tricky to say. And you know, uh, and South South Africa will probably come good again because, uh, yeah. I don't want to knock South Africa because obviously they've got they've got a great tradition in the game, but um, they are probably the team that plays to exert the maximum out of the rules in order to strangle the other team. Yeah, uh, and I'm not sure that's a, a you know I'm not sure that's a good thing for the game. But having said that, they're you know they've got some immensely talented players and they're going to be they're going to want you know they've got motivation to retain that trophy so. Yeah, I feel like yeah, maybe Ra- maybe a France South Africa final. Oh, that would be something. Yeah, I feel it like would Ra- send New Zealand into collect- national collective mourning if they can't get to the final. Yeah. Oh God! And if South Africa gets another one, that means they've got more than everybody. And I, I don't know how yeah. they handle that. Yeah, Razzy yeah. Rasmus feels like the uh, the Bill Belichick of of rugby to me. He's like, hey, ah. w- yeah. when you guys want to change the rule and stop allowing me to do this, go ahead. But until yeah. then, yeah, that's a that's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, they're just going to keep rolling on you. I mean, maybe it's because I'm so new. Uh, I hear a lot of complaints about the speed of the game now. I can even see it's enough already with the reset scrums. That gets pretty tiring. Um, people take too long at the kicks sometimes. But for the most part, I'm happy with the, the speed of the game. So uh, it, it maybe because of when I started watching, the things that people are complaining about now just don't bother me that much because that's part of the thing I signed up for. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's, again, it's a privilege of being a fan. The older you get, the more you know about the game, the more you can complain. 
<laughs> it's, it was always better. It was always better when I was younger. It was always better but, in the old days. Yeah, and that's what everybody says. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, people always find something to complain about. Well, t Tony, Dr. Collins, this has simply been great. I just couldn't be happier that you took some time to talk with me, much more than I even expected. That's just uh, really big of you. I, as I've said before, I'm a huge fan of your books and your, your writing, by the way, in particular, your, your story storytelling elements are really top notch. Uh, if you're sort of doing books that are history books, that element of actually telling a story so it doesn't feel like you're reading a textbook, that's hard to achieve and you do it every single time. Uh, I'm always eager for the latest episode of your podcast to drop. It's always entertaining and enlightening. Just thank you so much for being a part of the Scrum of the Earth. I couldn't be happier. No, thanks for having me on. It's been great to talk, uh, as it always is. So, yeah, um, look forward to speaking again soon. Is there anything else you want to plug or mention before I let you go? Feel free to plug away. Uh, well, my uh, oh, just go to the podcast. Uh, my podcast is called Rugby Reloaded, and you can find it at rugbyreloaded.com. Uh, all those links will be in the show notes for this episode and uh, as well as links to where you can buy some of these great books. I can't recommend them enough. Tony, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. My friends, that does it for this surprise bonus episode, recycled though it was. I admit, I found myself listening to it and I thought, I may as well share it since it had really been a while. As always, thank you for listening wherever you are. Cheers, talk to you soon, and be well.